chapter 1. We'll look at our PowerPoint verse and those surrounding it this morning. And I was thinking, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I've said this, I could probably buy a half gallon of gas. <laughs> but I have to say, I'm again this morning amazed at the sovereignty of God to bring us to this text, which was selected last November for this particular month. And yet here we are in something we need to hear. Now, we're going to encounter our word for the year in our opening verse, which is rest. And in some translations, the word is rendered set, meaning to set upon or to rest upon. And that is the meaning and application of our word here in our verses. Now, this reminds us that like hope and faith, rest requires an object that is associated with or someone that causes us to have that sense of rest or even makes it possible. Now, the opening word of our text is therefore, a familiar word used in many epistles and passages. And we have to remember that in an epistle, it's introducing a Christian imperative. In other words, it's telling us, here's what you do in light of what you just read. In the applicational sense, we might think of therefore as a flag that says, look back to what you just read and apply it to how you should now live. And that's how we're going to approach our verses this morning. Now, those that precede what we'll look at today, beginning in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, Peter said this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, aren't you glad there's mercies new every morning, has begotten us again to what kind of hope? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for, insert your name if you're a born-again believer, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, directly before the verses we'll look at today, Peter says, while we await this incorruptible and undefiled inheritance, there's going to be times of refining. We're going to go through, I wonder why it got so quiet here all of a sudden. There's going to be times of refining. There's going to be testings, and those things in the form of trials are used to prove genuine faith, which leads chronologically to our saves being sold and also reunited with a glorified body, or united, I should say. Now, because of this, because of our future, this is how we should live in the present is what Peter is going to tell us this morning. Now, the reason I find this to be so timely is that the rest we enjoy and so many others long for is elusive to them because they don't heed what is written in our verses. Now, the results are this results, I should say, in spiritual unrest or people always searching for more, something experiential, something sensory, something that cannot bring anything other than that, a momentary experience that fades as soon as the moment passes, leaving you longing for that next time or experience or feeling once again. Listen, there are days where you're not going to feel God's presence. Hello? There are days where you're not going to feel saved. All right, this isn't a testimonial. Come on, get on board here. There are days where we're going to wonder, God, do you hear me? God, are you hearing my cry, my prayer? And therefore, we cannot rely on the experience. We have to rely on the facts of our faith that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. 
And we also have to remember in Ephesians 4.30 that we looked at a few weeks back that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, the day our body, again, is going to be resurrected and we will appear uh, with the Lord in the air along with the dead in Christ. Today be a good day for that. Amen? Amen. Now, this is also creating an unrest in the body of Christ today. Because, listen, we have to remember, and this will be our subject this morning, that you can't be at rest when you're a saint who is in unrepentant sin. Because you're living with the grieving of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful for the grieving of the Holy Spirit, aren't you? I'm thankful that God cares for us in such a manner. We'll talk in length and at detail or uh, uh, at, with detail and at length about that this morning. So Peter says, because we have been born again through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead into an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled that is kept for us by the power of God, live like this. Do these things. This is what he's going to tell us this morning. Now, because of our word, our title has to be appropriate this morning. We could say is what Peter is giving us directions to this morning is, and here's our title, the rest area. Peter is going to give us directions to the rest area. And this tells us that if we pay attention to these three areas that Peter is going to discuss, we're going to have rest. We're even going to have rest in perilous times. We're going to have rest when we're going through a trial, when we're experiencing trouble. And we already established that this is a possible context or concept, rather, in August through our PowerPoint verse where Jeremiah 6.16 gave us the instruction, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for what? The old baths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said what? People are saying that today as well. We're not going to walk in the ways of the Lord. They're too antiquated. They're outdated. They're irrelevant to culture and society. The world has advanced well beyond these things, and we need to move with it as the church. To that I say, B-O-L-O-G-N-A. <laughs> now, that somehow spells baloney. I don't know how, but it does. Now, our subject for our time today is really about choice. It's about choosing rest over restlessness. It's about choosing peace or turmoil. Our text is even going to say we have a choice between obedience and divine discipline. Now, one more thing before we head to the rest area. There are many today who reject the idea that repentance is a necessary component of salvation. And part of their claim is that the word repent means to change the mind. And so it does. To change the mind specifically about the person of Christ. Now, this is exactly where our text is going to begin, and the directives that follow tell us clearly that a changed mind about Jesus is going to result in a changed life that lives for Jesus. So let's learn how to have rest for our souls. That sounds pretty good right about now, doesn't it? With uh, state-ordered vaccine mandates for school children and all these other nonsensical things coming out today, I think we need an influx of hope and rest in our time this morning. Amen? Amen? So would you stand and read with me, please? We'll start with verses 13 to 16 of 1 Peter chapter 1 and read on down throughout the morning to verse 21. Let's start with 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, 
Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And Lord, we thank you for this passage this morning. Thank you that you chose and anointed Peter to write it, the one who had erred grievously, denied you uh, vehemently, and yet, Lord, you set your hand upon him to preach the first gospel message through which you added 3,000 souls to your kingdom. And we thank you for these authoritative words this morning. Give us ears to hear them, we pray, and a heart to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, girding up may not be something that draws a bevy of pictures into our mind, but if someone in the first century were to read it, they would instantly understand what this was pointing to. Whenever a man was in a hurry or when he had something that he couldn't uh, uh, move freely because of the toga or the robe he was wearing, he would gird up his robe. In other words, he would pull it up between his legs and tuck it into his belt so his feet wouldn't get entangled and so he could move freely. And Peter says, this is what we need to do mentally. We need to gird up our minds so they don't get tangled up in the affairs of this life. We're tangled up or tripping us up in our thinking to cause us to wander into things that uh, the Lord would not have us to do. He says, keep your mind guarded and be sober. And it's very likely that Peter was thinking back on the words of Jesus, which is always a good thing to do, right? In Luke 12, 35 to 40, the Lord said, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, he may open to him, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Are you living in expectancy of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? I hope so. We should be. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be what? Ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now this was really the theme for the messages I taught in these prophecy conferences, that we're living in a time where the expectancy of the return of Jesus for his church is low. Some people don't believe in the rapture today. Some people argue about when it's going to happen. And as I mentioned these past couple of weeks, listen, we don't break fellowship with people who are mid-trib. We don't break fellowship with people who are post-trib. We don't break fellowship with people who are pre-wrath. We just know that they have a very pleasant surprise coming. And after the rapture, everybody's going to be pre-trib. Amen? Now, Peter uses the issue of sobriety three times in this epistle which implies that a self-controlled and disciplined mind is what the Christian is to have in contrast to a clouded indifference of a drunken mind. And the Christian experience is to include this all the way to the end. In other words, it's true even today. Because when your mind is clouded by or with other things, 
it is impossible to rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought when Christ is fully revealed as the Lion of Judah. The revelation of Jesus Christ is coming. He's not coming back as a lamb. He's coming back as a lion. He's coming back to rule and reign in righteousness. Now listen, there's a major movement in the church today called the hyper-grace movement. And they basically deny repentance as a necessary part of salvation. But we need to note the proximity of the use of grace and obedience in the same context, in the same sentence, including nonconformity to the lust that ruled you in your days of ignorance, before you changed your mind about the person of Christ. And Peter is saying, we need to gird up our minds because we do have the mind of Christ. And Peter would go on to say in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 3, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, or expect to suffer. For he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime. Peter's saying we wasted enough time when we were doing the will of the Gentiles. And he describes that as walking in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries or abusive behavior, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And Peter boils this all down in our verses to a single statement, and that is, be holy. Now, there are those today who would argue that holiness is strictly something positional. In other words, it was granted to us through the blood and person of Christ, and it's something that we have received because he fully accomplished it on our behalf. And there's nothing practical about holiness that needs to be applied to our lives today. Well, let me say this. If that's true, Peter was wrong. And because what Peter wrote is in the Bible, that means the Bible is wrong. And therefore, there is a practical holiness that is involved in our salvation, even because it is positional, it is also practical. Because Peter says, be holy in all of your what? In all your conduct. Be holy in all of your conduct. I just don't see how you can read the Bible and come to the fact that Jesus doesn't change you or you don't need to change after you come to know him. Listen, I'm glad he's in the changing people business. Aren't you? I'm glad I'm not what I used to be. There's a whole bunch of other people named Stagner that are glad about that too. Now, why do we need to be holy, meaning not live like we used to? And the answer is a lot simpler than we think. Well, because of this, well, because of that. And we need to live holy because of this. But listen, we need to live holy for one reason in all of our conduct, and that is because it is written. It is written, be holy, for I am holy. And listen, when you run across that phrase, because it is written, it doesn't matter what follows. Whatever it is, is a divine directive. And the fact is, in our verses, the subject is areas of life that allow us to rest if it's written, it is a written instruction, and therefore it is a mandate of God when you find these things because it is written, or this phrase. And therefore, we could apply it to Ephesians 5.1, which we looked at uh, a few weeks back, to therefore be imitators of God as dear children. God is holy. So imitating God means we should be holy. Where'd you go? We should be holy as his dear children. God is separate from sinners. That means we should separate from sin. We're to reach sinners with the gospel, but we ourselves are to separate 
from the former things. Amen? God is dedicated to revealing that he is the Lord and bringing glory to his name. And therefore, we should be dedicated to revealing that he is the Lord and bringing glory to his name. And listen, living for the world or the things of the flesh will not and cannot do that. And as a matter of fact, they are the enemies of rest. We cannot find rest for our souls living for this world. Now, here's the first area of life that allows us to have the rest that we all need and desire. And it's kind of a, um, I don't know, a correction, I guess, to the whole hyper-grace movement and uh, those who say you don't need to change after Jesus changes your eternal destiny. Listen this morning. Holy living has no consequences and many benefits. Holy living has no consequences and many benefits. So let's say for argument's sake that you believe holy living is works. First of all, you'd be wrong. And second of all, let's say you believe that. Holy living is still the best way to live. There is no better way to live than to live in an effort to imitate God as his dear children. And since Peter seemed to favor sobriety as an illustration of this, let me just say this from a personal perspective. I had many drunken-based regrets in my years as a drunk, but I haven't had one in almost 40 years since I quit drinking. Now, listen, since I quit drinking, by the way, Friday, Terry and I have been married for 44 years, so God is a healer and a restorer. But listen, since I quit drinking and all the associated behaviors that went along with that, God restored my marriage. God brought my daughter back into my life, who I hadn't seen for eight months. Since I quit drinking, God gave us a son, and then God gave us a wonderful daughter-in-law who married our son. Since I quit drinking, God gave us four awesome grandkids. He called me into the ministry. He allowed us to plant this wonderful church. I traveled all over the world telling other people about him. Before I quit drinking, the only thing that I reaped in my life was sleeping in my car or on friends' couches, having nothing, going nowhere, because I was nothing but a drunken bum, absolutely good for nothing. You're going to have a hard time selling me on negatives associated with holy living. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says in 66.18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not what? The Lord will not hear. If you need further clarification on that, inside the marriage boundaries, Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not what? Be hindered. And listen, if you're looking for an area of life that creates a sense of rest, start with holy living. There are no negative side effects. There are only positive benefits. Now, to not live holy, however, can be a hindrance to your prayer life. And who wants that? I want God to hear my prayers, don't you? <laughs> okay, did you guys forget how this works? <laughs> I want God to hear my prayers, don't you? Yeah. Absolutely. And we don't need a hindered prayer life or the other things we'll see here in a moment. Now, let's keep looking and uh, reading at verses 17 to 19. And Peter then adds this, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in what? 
fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, Peter's quote of Leviticus 11.45 is a reminder that the New Testament age believer is not observing copies and shadows of things that were yet to come. The golden bowls and the silver trumpets that he is referencing here and all the traditions and rituals of the Jews have now become actualized in the person of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 10, 1 to 4 makes the point that the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image or icon of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offered continually year after year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. How often? Every year. Here's why. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And yet, Leviticus 17.11 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. However, it had to be better blood than that of bulls and goats or Passover lambs. And what Jesus did for us could not be accomplished through the law, and that is to redeem us from the law of sin and death by his own death, resurrection, and ascension. And Peter says, as someone who is called, has called on the Father to save them through the blood of his Son, the way to live in response to this matchless, indescribable gift of salvation is to live in the fear of the Lord. Is the fear of the Lord a New Testament concept? Or is that kind of old OT? And I don't mean overtime. I mean Old Testament. Now, the psalmist tells us in 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and understanding. And then in Acts 9.31, we're told, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. They were built up and walking in what? The fear of the Lord. The church was walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were multiplied. Now, since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we can understand that not walking in the fear of the Lord is therefore foolishness. We need to walk in the fear of the Lord. Amen? And the Acts 9.31 verse is crucial to our understanding because it establishes two things. First, it establishes the fear of the Lord is a New Testament principle. And secondly, that the church was edified, multiplied, and comforted by walking in the fear of the Lord. Now listen this morning. If someone is comfortable with rejecting portions of Scripture, they don't have the fear of the Lord. Or they don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Either one is a negative. Neither is a positive. Amen? If someone is unrepentant and remorseless about repeated sin, sins defined in Scripture, they don't have the fear of the Lord. If someone doesn't think repentance is a necessary component of believing and being saved, they don't have the fear of the Lord either. Because why would you have it? If you're saved, what do you have to worry about? Now, the fact is, the fear of the Lord is just what it means to fear God. The Greek word is phobos, and it means to be alarmed. 
It means to be exceedingly frightened. And listen, people have a hard time with the fear of the Lord and the loving God and all the other things. And often it leads to, you know, people saying, well, there's the God of the Old Testament and there's the God of the New. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Now, remember, a couple, you know this had to come up this morning. There was a couple in Acts 5 named Ananias and Sapphira. They conspired together to make themselves look better before the apostles and the church about a piece of property they sold and how much of the money, what percentage of the money they donated to the church. Peter said, you haven't lied to man, you lied to God. And three hours apart, after Ananias died, Sapphira came in and said, yeah, we did what we said we did. They uh, both died for lying to the Holy Spirit. Did they have the fear of the Lord? No, they did not. But here's what happened next. Great fear, Acts 5.11 says, came upon what? All the church and upon all who heard these things. Now, again, hopefully this uh, our next observation will not only remind us of how to have and live in a state of rest uh, with our minds girded and protected from the things of this world, but also maybe do, again, a little bit of correction regarding some of the modern thinking in this postmodern or postmodern thinking in this uh, season of church history. Listen this morning. The fear of the Lord and a loving God is a comfort, not a contradiction. The fear of the Lord and a loving God is a comfort, not a contradiction. Now, you may be thinking, and possibly for good reason, how can those two things be reconciled? How can the fear of the Lord be a comfort to us? Well, Hebrews 12 gives us the answer in 6 through 8. For whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens, he disciplines them, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all that become partakers, then you are what? Illegitimate and not sons. Now, let me just say this. You ready for this? God is not a liberal. <laughs> he does not pass out particip participation trophies to everybody who is alive. He judges people according to their works. Are we going to stand before the beam of seat of Christ? Are we going to be judged for what we've done with what he gave us? Absolutely. It won't be for the matter of salvation that was secured by the blood of Jesus but it will be a matter concerning our eternal rewards outside of heaven, uh, which is the gift of God. If you are God's child, you can take comfort in his chastening because it proves he loves you and you're one of his. If someone is comfortable in unrepentant sin, comfortable in saying his word is antiquated and culturally irrelevant, comfortable and even defensive about their position, on things that conflict with Scripture, they're illegitimate and not his child. I'm not saying that. God did. You believe the Bible? You believe every word of God is pure? The entirety of it is truth? We just read it in Hebrews, therefore it has to be so. God is love, but love is not what the world says it is. The world has changed the definition of love. Love to many today is acceptance and tolerance of all behaviors. Now listen this morning. Love is not calling people by their preferred pronoun. Right? That's just endorsing mental illness, actually, is what it's doing. 
listen, uh, uh, psycho, uh, the American Journal of uh, Psychological Medicine or Psychiatric Medicine until 1973 listed homosexuality as a mental disorder. Now, the medical evidence that got them to change that is non-existent. Culture made them change that. Now, listen, love is not being a confirming church that accepts all sexual orientations as God-given. The gender list, according to God, is end of list. Right? And it is not loving to accept something that is a bold-faced lie and promote it as truth. God gave us a book that tells us what is right and wrong. God gave us a book that tells us what is true and false. And because it is written, we are to accept it. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. God's not running a popularity contest. And he's not waiting for us to come in line with what we think he ought to do and to present it to him so he can change what he wrote. God's word stands fast in the heavens. And because it is written, we are to repent when our lives or thoughts are in conflict with God's word. Now, I want you to think about this. This really kind of hit me yesterday as I was thinking about all the crazy things going on in our country. We need to pray that God saves Gavin Newsom because that man is a danger to us and to everybody in the state of California. But the fact is, when it comes right down to it, Satan's trying to make holiness and the fear of the Lord illegal because holiness and the fear of the Lord are defined by reading the Bible. And holiness and the fear of the Lord have parameters and there are boundaries to those things because both of those things Holiness and the fear of the Lord are founded on those four words because it is written. And the fear of a loving God is not a contradiction. It's a source of comfort. And the reason that 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 is true is because without the conviction, think about this, without the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the loving discipline of God, we would have no way of knowing if we're truly saved until after we die and find out where we're at after we die. And this is why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? How do you know if Christ is in you? Do you have the fear of the Lord? Meaning, are you concerned about whether or not you're pleasing to him? And are you wanting to be holy like he is holy because it is written? Now, if you can do what the Bible says you shouldn't do and not sense the grief of the Holy Spirit. If you can reject portions of Scripture that you don't like or agree with and not feel convicted about it, you have no fear of the Lord, and that's not a good thing. I take comfort in the fact that when I do something that displeases God, He lets me know via the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful He's still working on me. Aren't you? I'm glad it's not a one and done, raise the hand, walk down the aisle, say a prayer, and then see you in heaven. I'm glad that he began a good work and he'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I take comfort in the fact that I am convicted when I am in error. And I'll be honest with you, I don't want him to have to discipline me. I want to repent before he has to. And therefore, the conviction of the Spirit is a source of comfort. I want to repent before it gets to the place where he goes public. And he does do that, doesn't he? 
Now, we're seeing that happen all around us, and that's why I say that this is so timely because we need to get back to the foundations of what the Bible teaches because there is rampant sin going on at every level of the church and people in uh, well-known positions of power are doing things that the Bible has forbidden and yet continuing as though it's okay with the Lord. And he has been exposing some of late, just as he has always done. But he gives us time to repent. Amen? God gives us time to deal with it while it's between just us and him. And the fact is, the fear of the Lord is the entrance to the rest area. And without it, we live in foolish unrest without the comfort of knowing we are his. Now, let's wrap it up this morning. Listen, as I said, these verses were lined up for us last November, so I'm sorry I couldn't come back after a couple of weeks and bring a happy clappy. <laughs> we need to hear this, so right? Yes. We need to reincorporate the fear of the Lord in our everyday thinking, having minds girded up. 20 to 21, we'll wrap up our time, where we're told, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in who? God. Now, this really answers the age-old question of why would God create the world if he knew man was going to fall and what he was going to do? Now, the question really is answered here because free will is necessary for love to exist. If there is no free will, love cannot exist happen. It's not even possible. Now, God foreknew of man's rebellion against his, how many commands did he give Adam and Eve in the garden? It was like thousands of things that they shouldn't do, right? How many was it? I'm giving you a hint. Just one. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. So where they wind up? Checking out the tree, talking to a serpent. Listen, I think, I've said facetiously, I think the original sin wasn't eating the fruit. I think it was Adam letting his wife talk to some snake. Amen? Now, God had a plan already in place to redeem men before he ever created a single thing. The plan was already in place. And the plan was manifested in the last days through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that those who believe in him can rest their faith and hope fully in God. One of my commentaries, I ran across uh, the record of uh, where Mike Wallace uh, was interviewing a man named Yehiel Denur, and he was a concentration camp survivor. And he was testifying against Adolf Eichmann uh, at the Nuremberg trials. And Wallace actually played a clip of the trial from 1961 where the Nazi architect of the Holocaust uh, walked into the courtroom and came face to face with the man who had sent him to Auschwitz or had been sent to Auschwitz 18 years earlier. Denor began to shake uncontrollably and sob, and then they finally fainted, collapsing in a heap on the floor as the judge was trying to bring order back into the room, pounding his gavel uh, in the crowded courtroom. The question was asked, was Denor overcome by hatred, fear? Was it horrible memories? And Denor told Mike Wallace when he inquired as to why he had this, such a, a radical and physical 
reaction because Denor explained, once he realized that Eichmann was not some godlike army officer who sent so many to their deaths, but Eichmann was just a man, Denor said, I became afraid about myself, realizing that I am capable of being just like him. Jeremiah tells us in 17, 9 and 10 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Thankfully, there's an answer in verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Now, Yahil Denur came to this realization when he looked a monster in the face. And he came to the same conclusion as John Bradford in the 16th century as he walked, watched a group of criminals ascend the steps up to the gallows and he put his hand on his chest and he said, but for the grace of God, there go I. You know, people today have come to the conclusion that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. The problem with that concept is there's no good people. There's none good. No, not one. And people say, how could a loving God send people to hell? Well, everybody is born headed there. And the idea that we're all God's children is also false. We are only God's children through the process of adoption, through being adopted by the blood of Jesus Christ. After all, Genesis 5.3 says, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in what? His own likeness. In his fallen state, he begot a son like him after his image and named him Seth, meaning appointed. We are born in the image and likeness of Seth, who was born in the image and likeness of his fallen father. And yet the fact that God had a plan to rescue man before man even fell says all we need to know about the goodness of God. The plan is able to save as many as received him. And his blood is sufficient to cover all sin, all mine and all of yours, which are many. I don't know where you're at, but you better get on board here. All our sin, the sins of the whole world, we're told. After all, John says in 1, 12 to 20, or 13, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, if you have to become a child of God, it means you weren't, right? He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John would say in his first epistle in 2, 1 and 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the atonement or the appreciation, propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for what? The whole world. Now, have you ever been on a road trip and seen a sign that read, rest area ahead for all even numbered license plates? <laughs> Who, who's the rest area for? Everybody. everybody that's tired. Everybody that needs to take a break. And listen, the blood of Jesus was shed for the sins of the whole world. And as I said, propitiation means atonement. And that means that anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. And it means everybody has the opportunity to be saved. Because we're all born headed for hell. And through Christ, we can change our destiny to eternity in heaven. How is that unloving? How is that unfair? 
And yet many accuse God today of being disproportionate in his response to the rejection of his son when he sent his son into the world to die for the sins of the whole world. And so if somebody goes to hell, it's not because God is unfair. It's because they chose to reject Christ. And this is what the Bible teaches in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, that the coming of the lawless one, the son of perdition, the man of sin, the beast of Revelation 13, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be what? Saved. And for this reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth, God will send them strong delusion. Boy, are we living in an age of delusion. That they should believe the lie, the Antichrist's ultimate claim that he's God. That they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Listen, those things all travel together. Rejecting the offer of salvation, believing the lie, being condemned, not believing the truth, pleasuring in unrighteousness are a package deal. And there's only one way to change your direction in life, and that is through Jesus Christ. And we live in a world that loves unrighteousness. And the majority of people today are foolish enough not to fear the Lord. But the plan to save fallen man is older than the earth itself. But the problem is man wants to reject the truth and live for sinful pleasures instead. And listen, I say this every week, and I'll say it every week until the Lord comes to get us all together collectively in the group plan at one time in the moment and twinkling of an eye. I believe Jesus is coming soon. I believe it more and more every day. And not just the sense, in the sense that previous days have been disqualified as the day of the rapture and we're simply closer. The signs are all around us. Jesus is coming to get us. And he's coming to get us soon. And Peter would go on to say in the same epistle in the fourth chapter in 17 and 18 of that chapter, the judgment begins at the house of God. And the Lord, I believe, is sifting his church right now. He is patient. He is kind. Amen? He is patient and he is kind. And he is unwilling that any should perish. And he has been giving many of his children time to repent before his discipline becomes necessary and sometimes very public. And listen, in the immortal words of one of our elders here, Brother Dave Roberts, I think God is saying to some today all around the world and in every church, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> Amen? Holy is the best way to live. Why? It has no negative consequences. You're never going to get up in the morning and say, oh, I wish I had them. You will never have one single day where you, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, sought to live a holy life, said, the next day, I wish I wouldn't have done that. But there's a multitude of things we wish we hadn't have done that we did in the efforts of the flesh. And listen, don't let the world tell you that love is absent of restrictions or instructions. And lastly, remember this is the area that creates rest. And we can take comfort in this. Listen this morning, God had a plan to save you long before you wanted to be. God had a plan to save you long before you wanted to be. And I do not believe that at birth some are predestined to heaven and some are predestined to hell. I believe at birth all are headed to hell. 
but I do not believe that God pre-selects some who are going to hell and some who are going to heaven and some who are headed for hell have no opportunity to ever come to know him. That would be inconsistent with him being unwilling that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But I do believe also that he knows who will say yes to his offer of salvation. And he knows who will say no to his offer of salvation. And I do believe that he acts according to his foreknowledge in that regard. And listen, if Christ died for the sins of the whole world, then that means the whole world can be saved. But they're not. Because they make the free will choice to not receive the love of the truth. Now here's why this is a rest area for all of us. Because God knew you and I were going to come to faith and trust in him. He was guiding and guarding and directing you to the time and place where you would be saved. He already knew the outcome. Aren't you glad that God treats us according to what we're going to be and not what we deserve or are? And we need to be careful here because we also need to remember that today is a day of salvation, not tomorrow. We don't know if tomorrow will come for any of us. We had in our... Um, we had about a day and a half where we could wander around Washington, D.C., and Terry and I found our way uh, to Arlington National Cemetery. And we, we have kind of a strange habit, and I'm kind of glad to find out there's a lot of other people that do it too. But whenever we travel, we go to cemeteries, especially old cemeteries. We just love uh, going to uh, cemeteries and seeing and thinking about history. And, and I particularly wanted to go to Arlington because I wanted to see John Kennedy's uh, place of burial. And just, uh, it was a moment in my young life. You know, I, I was six years old when Kennedy was assassinated. And it, I still remember it. I remember everything about that moment in time where I learned. I just wanted to see it. I wanted to see it and be there. And then we found ourselves in, outside of Leesburg in a very small but old cemetery where people were born in the 1700s. And Terry and I came across four little headstones about this big. And they were well-worn. And as we looked at the headstones, they all had the same last name. They were all from the Matthews family. There were two boys and two girls. And they all died in 1918 during the Spanish flu. And it just was a reminder about the brevity of life. As we looked at some of the other stones where people had lived long lives into their 80s and 90s, and thinking about what they experienced, some born before the Civil War who saw the whole of it, others who were born just before it and were children, watching the terrors of it a tear through our country, and then families. I can't imagine a family losing four children to the Spanish flu, and how life is so fragile, and yet how this life is not all there is. We cannot approach this life with just this you know, eat, drink for tomorrow, we die kind of attitude. Because this life is not all there is. There's another life, and it's long. As a matter of fact, it's eternal. And listen, we can take comfort in the fact that God was moving on our behalf, directing us to these places where we would come to know him. But I think we also need to recognize that he was using people to do that. Even as he guided and guarded us, by his spirit, we all came to faith in Christ because somebody preached the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And listen, Jesus is coming soon. 
I have no doubt about that. And I've said this before, I'll repeat it again this morning. If Jesus doesn't come soon, and soon is relative, it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be in a month, it could be in a year. But listen, if Jesus doesn't come soon, we have to rethink our whole biblical interpretation. But I don't think we do. I think the evidence supports us that we ought to be looking up because our redemption is nigh. Boom, that's how fast we're going to be with the Lord. And one of the points in one of the messages over the weekend was that one day you're going to open your eyes and be looking at Jesus. Just like that. Blink once, open. You're looking at Jesus. That's how fast it's going to happen. Until then, because it is written, be holy, for he is holy. Don't live like you used to. Live completely, all out, full throttle for him. You'll never, ever regret it, somebody say. Amen. Amen. And Father, we are grateful for our time and your matchless word this morning. And Lord, I do pray if there's any in the room or online who have not settled that matter Lord, I pray especially for any who have settled for churchianity over Christianity, that they would come to a true and saving faith by trusting in you to completely cover their sins in your own blood and to be assured that their name is written in the book of life and that they begin to see your hand at work in their lives and the conviction of your Holy Spirit when Errors are practiced by each of us, so we stumble in those momentary uh, flesh encounters that we all have. We thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that in these last days, in these last moments, minutes, or seconds of church history as we know it, that we would live all out for you and to see your command as such to be holy as our Father and heaven is holy. We thank you for these things today. And friend, listen, before we go, we can't talk about this without making sure that everyone here or watching online or whatever has made that decision to accept God's offer of salvation. Now, it's not without condition. You have to accept, and that's why the Bible presents Jesus as the word of God. You cannot accept Jesus and reject the word. They're a package deal. You cannot say, I want his blood to cover my sin, but I reject all of his boundaries on sexual activity. He won't accept that. It's all or nothing. It doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter what popular thinking is. You accept the word of God as written because it is written. So if you don't know that at the end of your days you'll spend eternity in heaven, And if you don't know that you're a child of God and if you're living defending sin in your own life or things the Bible has defined to be sin, you're comfortable in practicing and living without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I say to you what Jesus said to Nicodemus and that is you must be born again. Because when Jesus gave the promise of the coming Holy Spirit in John 14, the first thing he said the Holy Spirit would do is convict the world of sin. That is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin so that they come to repentance and to convict the saint of sin so they come back to holy living. And this is how we know for sure. This is how we can take the test to know that we are
truly his. And I cannot uh, stress enough how important this is that we finalize this decision right now and make sure we know that we are indeed born again. Listen, we, you know, have done many things over the years, and I just want to make sure that you fully understand that God does a work as you're sitting in the seat. A raised hand, a walk down on a field, or out on an aisle, or saying a prayer isn't what saves you. Jesus saves you. And if you make the decision in your heart right now that I am his, and I agree with him and his word and all that it says, and you believe and say to him and confess that he is the Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead in your heart, the Bible says you are saved. So if you made that decision this morning, heaven is rejoicing and we do too. Now, I do want to say this. I think there's great value in giving public invitations because it really kind of separates things right away. Because if you want to do something secretly, there's nothing secret about the Christian life. It's a public life. It's a life of proclaiming that God is, has saved you and is the Lord of your life. So I want to encourage you to do something. If you made that commitment this morning, if you did it so online, send us an email and let us know uh, that you have made that decision. If you made that decision this morning, I'm going to encourage you to come forward and tell one of our elders this morning. And here's why I think this is important. If you can't tell somebody that's going to be excited about it, you're never going to tell anybody who is going to oppose it. And those who oppose it are the ones who need to hear it. And start your journey this morning by coming and telling someone, I made a decision to follow Jesus. I don't care if you've been going to church your whole life. I don't care if you've been going to this church since you started. You have to be born again. Everybody has to be born again who wants to go to heaven. And the assurance of our salvation is found in the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the transformation of these lives, as Paul said in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Present yourselves holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, is what the Bible admonishes us to do. And we're to do it for one reason and one reason above all else, because it is written. So because it is written, you must be born again, you must be born again. Because it is written, you must be holy as he is holy. You must be holy as he is holy. And you can't be holy without Jesus. And you can't be holy without the person of the Holy Spirit living in you. So if you made that decision this morning, come tell somebody uh, after our closing song. Father, we're again grateful. Thank you that once in a while, especially through Peter this morning, you take the gloves off and tell it like it is. Even in the midst of all the wonderful places, we find such encouragement and excitement. We thank you, Lord, for passages like these that give us directives that build our confidence and comfort our souls in times such as these. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all the warriors of God said, Amen. Amen. Would you all stand?